Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to Women in the Word. My name is Amy Foster. I'm just delighted to be here with all of you today, delighted to study God's Word with you, especially these Psalms. Today, we're going to look at Psalm 121, and I'm just going to let you know right up front, it's my favorite. I love it. I'm real happy to get to teach it. Um, It really came into my life at an important time. Years ago, I was just going through some trauma and tumult. There were circumstances outside of my control causing me a lot of pain and really redirecting my future. And at that time, my future really was unknown, and I was filled with fear and anxiety and anguish. And the truth is, there was no rest for my soul. And rather miraculously, miraculously, in the midst of that time, one day a woman I really didn't know approached me. She put her hand on my shoulder and she said, Amy, I have a psalm for you. These are God's words for you. And she recited Psalm 121. And I'm going to ask you to give me a little artistic liberty. We're going to read it together today. So open your Bibles to Psalm 121, but I'm going to read it the way she recited it to me. I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Amy, he will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. The Lord, Amy, he is your keeper. He is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not strike you by day or the moon by night. The Lord will keep you, Amy. He'll keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. I hope you put your name in there instead of mine. Those were powerful and fitting words for my circumstances and for yours. They were healing words for my tormented soul and for yours. And I learned to do something with this prayer in the weeks and months and years that would follow that truly reshaped my soul. Now, you may have noticed as we read through this just now, and if you looked at it in your homework, the the psalm doesn't say one word about the writer's emotions, does it? And it doesn't actually tell us one word about the writer. We don't even know who he is. This psalm is all about God. So it's not a psalm of lament full of anguished thoughts and emotions, and it's not a psalm of petition that's full of request and express needs. What is it? It's something totally different. It's called a psalm of ascents. And maybe in your Bible, the caption is a pilgrim song. We know there are 15 psalms that are put in this category, psalms of ascent. You'll find them in your Bible from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. And we have to remember all of the psalms were used in unique ways as part of Israel's worship. They used all of these as worshipful prayers, We believe that most likely these Psalms of Ascent, they were used specifically by pilgrims who were traveling to Jerusalem. So these would be the Israelites who didn't live in Jerusalem, but they were being obedient to God as he had commanded them to make their way to his temple three times a year for sacrifices, for worship, and for offering. These were the travelers making their way to Jerusalem. And so we have to remember they couldn't buy a plane ticket. They couldn't load up their SUV. If they were traveling during this time, that meant long, hard, slow travel on foot. It meant being unprotected day and night. 
It was probably exhausting, and it may have been a little bit dangerous at times. Now, we also need to remember just the geography of the area. Jerusalem is at a higher elevation than all of the land around it. So that's why they call it these Psalms of Ascent. Anyone traveling to the holy city, they were climbing. They were moving upward. They were taking steps upwards towards God's presence, quite literally, because at that time, that's where God's presence was. It was in the Holy of Holies at the temple. So these were the songs, the hymns, the prayers that the travelers would use as they were trudging through the Judean wilderness. And these songs would focus their hearts and minds, not on the fears around them, but it would focus their hearts and minds on the God who they were going to worship. Others believe there may have been another use for these psalms of ascent. They believe that the Levites who served inside the temple may have used them. There's a spot in the temple where there are 15 steps, 15 stairs, and it's believed that the Levites would lead processions of worshipers up these 15 stairs, and on each step, they would recite the next psalm. And then they progress to the next one and cover all of the 15 Psalms of Ascents. So it's possible that they were used for both of those purposes, but they have a great purpose for us today. We're not uh, climbing the hills of Jerusalem right now, but these Psalms, they help us understand that our life also is a faith journey. It's a process of daily stepping towards God's presence. And in these Psalms of Ascents, we actually find some significant spiritual disciplines, elements that are helpful for us as we strive to be disciples. Now, maybe I'm shifting gears here and talking about discipleship and disciplines, and maybe you're thinking, I'm in the wrong room. I signed up to talk about emotions. I've done a bit of a bait and switch on you. Uh, Bear with me. Let me just challenge you to think this way. Discipleship is what equips you to deal with life's emotions. We're all going to experience emotions. If we're disciplined about it, if we have spiritual disciplines in our lives, we will respond to those emotions in ways that keep us taking steps closer towards God, not backing away from him. So the spiritual disciplines really work very much like the physical disciplines. And we all know what physical discipline is like. Maybe you go to the gym, you lift weights, you run, you work out on machines, and you do it over and over and over again. And you do it because you want to discipline and strengthen your body, and slowly those muscles start developing and toning up. And maybe without even knowing it, you start holding your body differently. And maybe without even knowing it, you start using your body differently. Suddenly, you're using your energy and your strength in a much more efficient and appropriate way. You're becoming physically healthy. It's the same with spiritual disciplines. We practice them. We practice them day after day, over and over again. And slowly, our soul begins to take a new shape. I think it takes the shape of Jesus' soul. And suddenly, maybe without our even knowing it, we start using spiritual energy in a more efficient, in a more productive way in our lives. We become spiritually healthy. So as we talk about Psalm 121 today, we're going to talk about it as a hymn of praise, but we're also going to talk about it as a discipleship or a spiritual discipline tool. And it's a tool that will develop in each one of us the quiet, calm, peaceful soul of Jesus. So as we move forward, I don't want you to think for a moment that this is some sterile tool that we just practice 
wrotely, it's not. I want you to consider this is still poetry. It's beautiful poetry. And nobody writes poetry to memorize dull, dry facts. Nobody writes poetry to teach a sterile discipleship tool. We write poetry because we want to kindle and stir our affections in our heart and in our soul. We write poetry because we want to remind ourselves of beautiful things. Poetry stirs our emotions and our affections to the place that we are naturally turning to God in worship and in trust. So this is still poetry, and ladies, it's still a prayer. It's a beautiful prayer, but it's not a prayer that we pray because we want to ask God to do something. It's a prayer we pray because we want the prayer to change us. We want it to change us. We want it to reorient us to God's reality, and we want it to reshape our soul. So we're going to look at it as poetry and prayer and spiritual disciplines. Let's start right off in the first verse. I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Right away, there's a couple of things implied that aren't explicitly stated. What's obvious here is the writer needs help. We don't know what his circumstances were, but he finds himself needing help. And the other thing that's obvious, he has multiple options. He has multiple places he can go to seek help. So if you were um, a, a traveler, a pilgrim, on foot in the Judean hill country, and you looked around, here's what you would find in those hills around Jerusalem. You'd find temples and shrines and altars to false gods. They were all over the area. They would be available to you as a source for help. The other thing that you would find is along those major routes and roadways, there would be some traveler's way stations offering you every conceivable kind of worldly comfort. There would be all kinds of choices for the pilgrim, things that promise relief and help. There wouldn't be many things that offered relief to a soul, though. And you know, we have a lot in common with these pilgrims, don't we? We have all the same options today. We have friends and counselors and advisors. We have numerous ways, alternative ways to address our worries, our fears, even multiple ways to numb our feelings and our worries. So it's a great opportunity for you to stop and think, where do I look for help? To whom do I go? And the psalmist really makes it quite clear here, there's really only one place to go. I'm gonna go to God with my help. And what he's doing, he's reminding himself, God is available to be my helper. And he even goes a step further. When he says, my help comes from the Lord, that's a pledge. What we're hearing him say here is he is putting his stake in the sand, he's digging his heels in, and he's saying, I'm going to look to God for my help. That's what he's doing, and that's what we can learn from him. And it's almost like he's saying, why wouldn't he? He made the whole heaven and earth. That's who God is. And we need to stop and pay attention to that description of God because there's so much meaning packed into the God who created heaven and earth. This is a reference to the God of Genesis. So think back with me to Genesis. This is the God who, in his creative mind, Everything we know and experience was conceived. Every color, every shape, every smell, every landscape. It was all God's idea before he ever brought it to be. That's how creative he is. And when we think about the God of Genesis, we also think about his power. So great that just with his words, let there be light. 
light was created. Everything was created. The description of him putting the stars in the sky is like flinging it off of his fingertips in an effortless way because his power is so profound. And in all of that, we also have this picture of Genesis before God came in, and it's described as formless and void. And that means everything was chaos, disorder, and darkness before God acted. And he brought order and beauty and form and function to what was dark. That's who God is, the creator of heaven and earth. And his power didn't stop with creation after those first few days. His power continues. His power is what makes creation continue to work. His power is working. He continues to exercise his divine energy over all of his creation. He put that sun up in the sky, and you know what? He keeps it there, and he causes it for us to go down in the west and to come up in the east every single day. And he put that water in the oceans, and he keeps it there, causing it to move in these corresponding tides that we don't really understand but they roll in and they roll out every day. He put the planets in their place in the sky, and every day, week after week, month after month, he keeps them perfectly aligned in their movement so we have the seasons and day and night and changes. God did not create all of the earth and then walk away from it. All of heaven, all of earth is at his disposal and under his power, and he's moving everything towards his appointed end. That's a big, grand idea of God. It's called the providential rule of God. And an easier way to remember that is, ladies, he's totally hands-on. He owns it all, and he exercises his power over it all. His help is available to you. His help is available to all of his people. The psalmist is reminding himself of that here. You know, I had a really distressing meeting one time. My children's futures were being discussed, and the meeting didn't go well. I left in tears and anxious. I jumped in my car. I was running late. I was scheduled to meet a friend. And as I drove to that meeting with my friend, I kept thinking, she's a good friend. She'll offer me wise counsel. She'll offer me comfort. She'll offer me encouragement. And these words came into my head, and I thought, but I could look to God for help. And I was driving past Foster Park, and so I just pulled into their little parking lot, and I sat under a tree, and I tried to act like the psalmist here. I tried to go first to God. God, will you help me? Will you bring all your creative energy to bear and create some good path in this circumstance because I can't see a good path? God, will you bring all your power into this really hard thing because I'm powerless to make this turn out good? And I think sitting there under that tree, God started reshaping my soul just a little bit. I think he started bringing me some trust and some peace and some rest, and I know his presence was there with me. When we remember that help is available from the one who brings order and beauty and function from chaos, we learn to have a still and a settled soul. And I just want to say, God's given us lots of great resources. He's given us godly, wonderful, encouraging friends. He's given us counselors. He's given us doctors. He's given us advisors. And we should feel the freedom to use all of those things that are within God's boundaries. But ladies, I want you to always remember they are created things, and their creator is standing by available to help you. 
Like the psalmist, let's make it our pledge, our resolve to don't look to the created things first, but look to the one who created everything. Let that be your personal pledge and a discipleship tool in your life. Next, the writer moves on and he he switches from talking about God's availability. He starts reminding himself of God's activity. In verse three, he says, God will not let your foot be moved. And another translation says it more strongly. He says, God will not allow your foot to be moved. So that immediately gives us a reminder that he's the king, he's the boss, he's the one that sets the limits and makes the rules. He's watching over it all. And when he says he won't let your foot be moved, we really have an opportunity to consider the poetic imagery here. Um, If it's a pilgrim song, then you can think about a traveler out in the Judean hill country. Maybe they're traveling under deep shade or maybe they're traveling at night under a dark sky. Maybe it's rough, rocky terrain, a foot slipping on the path. That suggests many things to you. It suggests danger or injury or peril. Maybe it even suggests death and something cutting off your journey and your ability to reach God. But I want to remind you that's poetic imagery. It isn't literal. This is not a promise that you will never twist your ankle, fall down, stub your toe, scratch your knee. It doesn't mean that. Foot slipping is really interesting. Um, That's something that's used multiple times through the Bible, a lot in the Old Testament. It never refers to stubbing a toe or twisting an ankle. When When the writer uses the word foot slipping, most of the time it means being overcome by something, being completely overwhelmed and overcome by something. I didn't include these on your verse sheet, but if you don't trust me and you wanna go look them up, write these down. You can look at Deuteronomy 32, 35. They talk about fear of having your foot slip and what the writer's talking about there is being overcome by God's judgment and his wrath. Then we just talked a few weeks ago about Psalm 38. David talked about my foot slipping, people rejoicing when my foot slipped. He's talking about being overcome by grief for his personal sin. We've got Psalm 66 and Psalm 94, and there it talks about my foot slipping, and it's talking about being overcome by an enemy's oppression. So it's always about being overcome by something. So if it's not literal, what does it mean that God won't let your foot slip? I think it means he's going to keep you upright and stable on your path. He's not going to give anything else the power to overpower you. I think it means he won't allow anything to overcome you. And I think we need to remind ourselves of that truth. Think about it. You won't ever be overcome by God's judgment and wrath if you are his in Jesus Christ because you're covered with Jesus' righteousness. And you don't have to be overcome by sin's temptation because God has offered you resurrection power. You're no longer a slave to sin. You don't have to follow out, follow it. And you don't ever have to be overcome by an enemy because God says he's holding you right here in, your hand, in his hand. Nothing's ever gonna snatch you out. Nothing ever is going to take you out of his family. So when God says he won't let your foot slip, I think he means he's providing the power and the means for you, his follower, to persevere to the end. He will help you persevere through life. Now, we have to stop and acknowledge we don't always choose perseverance, but that's on us. God always does his part. 
God always offers us the power to persevere. He is sovereignly directing our life. He's providing all that we need to keep us on the path. God keeps you. And keeps here means he oversees, he guards, he watches over, he defends, and he saves. And all that powerful care, it's both personal and it's perpetual. Because we get this great description here that God never goes to sleep. He's not saying that because he wants you to know God's sleep patterns. He's saying that because he wants you to know God's keeping patterns. God never stops keeping you. He never, ever stops. You never have to worry that something happens because God isn't watching, because God fell asleep, because God isn't interested. Maybe he's a little bored with what's going on in your life right now. Nothing comes into your life that God doesn't know about and God hasn't allowed. He doesn't get weary, bored, distracted, or uninteresting. Isaiah 40 sums this up. Isaiah 40, verse 28. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. That's who he is. He keeps you. I have this habit when I receive devastating news, either about my life, somebody close to me, your life, cancer, a child gone the wrong way, whatever it is. At some point, I find myself saying out loud, God is not surprised. God is not surprised. And I say it out loud because I need to remind myself. I need to direct my thoughts in a less poetic way that God doesn't go to sleep. He is not surprised by what's happening here. His care for us is perpetual and uninterrupted. It's deeply personal. It's also corporate. It's for all of God's people together. That's what's meant when he says he doesn't fall asleep on your life and he doesn't fall asleep when he's watching over Israel's life. He is watching over the entire nation and that's all the people who bear God's name. So remember, if you're a pilgrim making your way to Jerusalem and you're reminded God watches over Israel, do you know what I think you would remember I think you would remember, hey, way back before we were ever a mighty nation, we were one small family, and a little brother Joseph got sold into slavery into Egypt, and God was watching, and God made a way for the whole family to be safe and provided for in the future. And then when we became a numerous nation, so numerous that the Egyptians enslaved us, God was watching, and he sent 10 10 terrible plagues to show his power and cause the Egyptians to release us. And then when we found ourselves stuck between the Red Sea and the angry Egyptian army, God wasn't sleeping. He sent a massive cloud as a barrier between us and the army, protecting us all night long, and he parted the sea so we could cross. And in case that wasn't enough, and they were inclined to think that God ever sleeps and quits watching all through their wilderness travel, they had a visual reminder. They had a pillar of cloud watching over them all day long, and it turned into a pillar of cloud, a pillar of fire all night long. The Jewish pilgrim totally understood the never-sleeping, never-slumbering care of God. It was care for his people individually, and it was care for his nation corporately. I think this care applies to God's church today. I think this is a promise for us 
Just like his nation, he's bound us together as the community that bears his name, that presents and represents him to the world. He's committed to every single one of us, and he is committed to all of us, his church. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 16, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's Jesus saying, I won't allow it. The church will never be wiped out because God and Jesus are protecting it. God works, he directs his power, he makes his power available to keep each one of us, to keep all of us. God is ever watching his own. That's what the psalmist is remembering here. That's what God does. So for us, when our soul is unsettled, here's what we can do. Just like the psalmist, don't assume God is indifferent, inattentive, unaware, uncaring, caught off guard, slumbering or sleeping. He's not. He's not. Remind yourself he works to keep you. He works to keep you on the path. He works to give you the power so that you won't be overpowered by anything else. That's all God's activity. Read with me in verse five. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not strike you by day nor the moon by night. Okay, so here God is described as the keeper in verse five, but look up at verse three, he keeps you. So in verse three, we use the word keeps, it's a verb, but in verse five, we use the word keeper as a noun, and it's personal, it's your keeper. So what he's really talking about here is not God's activity so much as God's identity. If God is your keeper, that means God is your guard, God is your night watchman. God is your sheltering protection. And everything is written in the present tense. This is your God for you today. God is your keeper. And if he's the keeper, that says a little something about each one of you too. We are all kept women. I don't know how you feel about that. (laughs) He says he's your sheltering shade on your right hand. There's two different poetic forms of imagery that are being used here with this idea of sheltering shade. The first is at your right hand. Um, Right hand, really, that suggests fighting warrior language. Um, If you were in the army, you understood what it meant to have protection at your right hand. The right hand holds the sword or the shield. The left hand, excuse me, the right hand holds the sword. The left hand holds the shield. So if God is at your right hand, he's protecting your unprotected side. He's protecting your side that has to act and be able to function. That's what's meant by the right hand uh, protection there. But the other bit of imagery is shade imagery. He is your shade at your right hand. And you know, I thought we have a profound advantage in our understanding of this imagery here because just like the Israelites, we live in a land with a hot dry, scorching sun, don't we? We live in a land where you can fry an egg on the sidewalk or on the dashboard of your car in the summertime. You know it's right. So when God uses this imagery here of shade, we can understand that means shelter, relief, respite. It means a mighty, protective, soothing barrier. But we also know shade doesn't come from nothing, Shade doesn't just appear. There must be an object between me and the sun if there's going to be shade. 
So when God says he is your shade, he's communicating, he is the object between you and any threatening force. He's the object between you and anything that wants to hurt you. God is right there at your right hand, shading you every day, present tense. What can we do with this? You don't have to wonder if God is there. You don't have to summon him from far away. You don't have to wait for his arrival. You don't have to worry that maybe he can't hear you. He's right there. He is sheltering you. Psalm 109 describes this, for he stands at the right hand of the needy one to save him from all those who condemn his soul to death. That's a great picture of God. I wanna give you a great picture of you. Look at Psalm, uh, excuse me, that was Psalm 109, and now look at Psalm 91.1. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High, he abides in the shadow of the Almighty. And I will say to the Lord, my refuge, my fortress, my God, in whom I trust. So because he is the keeper, you get to settle down, make yourself comfortable, be at peace, be at home in the protective shade of God. And that's where you find trust and protection and peace. The writer gives us a second reminder here that this keeping role is perpetual because he says God does this all day long when the sun is out and God does this all night long when the moon is shining, reminding you all the time, uninterrupted and perpetual protection from God. And you know, as I think about God and his identity as the keeper, I'm reminded of Aaron's blessing on the nation of Israel. Remember, God redeems his people out of Israel and he gives them a new identity. He said, now you're gonna be my people. You're gonna bear my name. You're gonna carry my blessing into the world. And he has Aaron call the people together and he says, give these words to them. This comes from Numbers chapter six. The Lord bless you and the Lord keep you. To be kept is a blessed identity. It was for Israel, it is for all of us. We're kept. Now, I have no doubt that the pilgrim on the path to Jerusalem, he encountered difficulties along the way. And I'm sorry to tell you, I have no doubt that we will encounter difficulties in our future days. But these verses tell us we're never alone. We're never unprotected. One writer says, while God's people may experience all the world's discomfort, his shadow is always at their side. He's always shielding them from harm. And I think Jesus says the same thing in Matthew 28 when he says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So what do we do with this? Just like the psalmist, we remind ourselves, God is at your side. That means you don't have to run after distant help. That means you don't have to seek out some alternative new form of wisdom or healing or truth. You know, I laughed thinking we don't have to go to a fortune teller and we don't have to rush to the wine cellar. God is at our side. Ladies, I want you to trust in God's identity as the keeper, and that means you trust that you have been given an identity of a kept woman, which means you can rest in that identity. You can have no fear. Now, we've talked a lot about these verses so far in terms of spiritual disciplines and what we remind ourselves of and things that we do, but I don't want us to forget it's a prayer. 
It's a prayer. This is communication with God first and foremost. It just looks different because it's not making a request towards God. It's doing something different. It's speaking God's truth right back to God. It's telling God what he already knows. And that's a beautiful way to pray. And there's so much benefit when we speak God's truth back to him. Think about the benefit to us. It reminds us of God's truth and helps us remember it. It helps us train our minds to think in the direction of God's truth. But I wanna suggest something different here. It benefits God. It blesses God when you talk about his beautiful identity. It blesses God when you say, I've heard who you say you are and I believe it. It blesses both of us, and not just God and us, it blesses our union with God. It strengthens our bond and our intimacy with him. When we take the time to have this conversation with God, not coming to him with all our needs, coming to him with his words about who he is, it's all blessing and it's all benefit. Let's read the last part of this. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. We were in the present tense. Now we've shifted to the future tense here. And what the writer is doing, he's directing his thoughts to God's goal, God's eternal goal here. So if you're reading in the ESV, it says, the Lord will keep you from all evil. The translation I originally learned this in said, the Lord will keep you from all harm. And I'm gonna be honest with you, I stumbled a bit over those words, and maybe you do too. I want you to be real honest, and I want you to raise your hand if you've ever experienced harm or evil. Every hand raised, the rest of you are liars, okay? (laughs) Or queens of denial, something like that, yeah. We have all experienced harm. We've all experienced hurtful things. So what does this mean when it says God will keep you from all evil? You know, I'm reminded Elizabeth Elliot has this quote that I love. It says, in a wrong-filled world, we will all suffer many wrongs. And we know that's true, right? And Jesus, he always says it best. He says, in the world, you will have tribulation. So we know that this line, I'll keep you from all harm, doesn't mean nothing bad will ever happen to us. We have to remember this writer was Jewish. He was writing for a Jewish audience, and a Jewish audience at this time understood evil doesn't mean bad things. Evil means the ultimate penalty for sin. Evil means the ultimate curse for sin or evil. Just like an Israelite, if they were guilty of a sin and refused to offer sacrifices, they were put outside the camp, outside the fellowship with God's people, forever away from the presence of God. That's what's meant here by this term, um, God will keep you from all evil. He will keep you and protect you from being eternally separated from him. That's what God ultimately wants. He wants to protect your soul from evil's curse and penalty. That's God's great goal, and it's an eternal goal. So that should change the way we think about the evil things we experience here in this world, shouldn't it? I want you to bear with me in this thought just a little bit. I'm not for a moment being insensitive to our present-day suffering, so stick with me to the end here. But I wanna suggest to you that a cancer diagnosis is not the worst thing that could ever happen to you. 
nor is a broken relationship, a divorce, an ill child, a bankruptcy, a burned down house. Banished from God's presence, cast off from God forever. That is the worst thing that could ever happen to you. God doesn't want that for you. God's goal for you is to protect you from that. So while we live, we have to remember evil can come close. Evil can even tempt us. Evil can bring difficulty into our lives. But if you are God's in Christ Jesus, evil cannot claim you eternally. That's God's promise and pledge to you. Now, we're fortunate we live on this side of the New Testament, and we can fully see how God accomplishes that goal. We know that Jesus, who was perfect and sinless, he substituted himself on our behalf. He paid the penalty for our sin. He took that condemnation and curse on himself. And when we put our faith in that, we are kept from the condemnation of evil eternally. Then we can say, just like Paul in Romans 8, There is now no condemnation for me, for I am in Christ Jesus. We can say like Romans 8, 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? No one, no one. God's guarding and preserving of our life according to his goal is to keep us as far away from sin's curse as possible. He wants to keep us from sin's confusion. He wants to keep us from sin's domination. He's keeping us from all of those things because he wants to keep us for other things. God is keeping us for a forever life of enjoying and glorifying him forever. That's God's big goal. So we have to remember God's goal is not to prevent us from ever experiencing a difficulty or a discomfort in this life. Instead, he's promised that he will remove all of those discomforts in the one to come. It's there that he will dry away every tear. It's there that there will be no crying and no pain and no difficulties. And the third time here, the psalmist shows us this keeping role of God's, it's perpetual, It happens in all the seasons and activities. He talks about redirections of your life here. When you're starting something new and when you're finishing something up, God's keeping you. When you're hopefully planning a beginning, maybe when you're changing gears, when you've had a disappointing redirection, God's guarding includes the whole of your life and all of its occasions. When I look at these different disciplines, ways to direct our mind here, I'm just gonna be honest with you. I think this last one is probably the most challenging one for me to think about God's eternal goal because I've never experienced eternity before. But the things that I experience right here and right now, they're pretty real, they're pretty present. Sometimes they're pretty heavy. For me, what I feel right now can totally overwhelm and overshadow what God has promised for the future. I think the psalmist maybe felt the same way, and I think that's why he repeats the word keep or keeper six times. There's only eight verses in this whole chapter, and six of those verses he talks about God keeping and God being the keeper. And three times he reminds us the keeping is perpetual. It never stops. It never stops. And I think the writer keeps doing these reminders and repeating himself here because he knows something about all of us. Distrust is difficult to correct. It is, isn't it? 
And you know, we have all these experiences. We have the discomforts of life. We have disappointed plans. We have hurtful experiences. And all those things cause us to believe the lie, God isn't good. God isn't watching. God can't stop this thing in your life. All these things build distrust into us, and it takes a lot of repetition to correct distrust. So we have to counter these things over and over and over again, just like the psalmist with the truth. God is available to keep us. God wants to keep us. He works to keep us, and he's keeping us for very good purposes. I was reminded of one of my sons as I was studying this. When he was younger, he had a a strange sensitivity to anything sensory. Labels, seams on his clothes, tags, bad taste, everything he had a pretty significant reaction to. The greatest challenge of his childhood may have been getting antibiotics into his body every single time he was sick. And now I realize as I say that, you're imagining some cherubic little nine-month-old who's spitting out that sweet pink medicine that you're syringing into their mouth. I want you to imagine a nine-year-old, a nine-year-old who won't swallow medicine. If you were peering into the windows of our house, watching me pin him down to get medicine in him, you'd say, call 911. She's abusing him. That's what it looked like. That's what he thought. He knew I was abusing him. I was putting bitter-tasting stuff that must be poison in his mouth. And everything in him said, don't trust. Spit it out. Fight her. Resist this terrible, bitter plan. But I knew what all of you know, the bitter-tasting stuff. He needed it to make him well, to help him live. God's providential guarding and keeping does not promise to keep bitter things out of our lives, but instead, God promises he can take the bitter poison, he can overrule it, he can use it towards good purposes that fit his goal for our lives. Even the things that the world brings at us for harm, God can do something good with those things because God is keeping us and guarding us and moving our lives forward according to his plan. That's why we all love Romans 8, 28, right? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. God can use anything to reshape our soul, and he does. He overrules anything the world tries to bring into our lives. And so what do we do? We have to remember we're pilgrims. We keep taking our steps towards God. We know there will be vulnerable, weak, uncomfortable times. We know there will be moving forward and stepping back. But we also know God is working in all those things. He's working out his good purposes. My Aunt Susie had a favorite hymn. Maybe you know it. These two lines are repeated over and over in this hymn. Be still, my soul. The Lord is on your side. Susie had a pilgrim life. She was always taking the next step, moving closer and closer to God. And when she contracted ovarian cancer in the prime of her life, we were all shocked but God was not. God was not surprised. I watched my aunt bear the grief and sorrow and physical torment of that disease with a quiet soul. And at one point, she and my uncle found a beautiful piece of art that had these lines. You know, it had the whole text of that hymn, Be still, my soul, the Lord is on your side. And my uncle bought it for her, and they hung it at a prominent place in their home. 
I have no doubt that on difficult days, days when she was experiencing the torment that felt like poison, she practiced the discipline of looking at those words and reminding herself that God was on her side. And at dear Susie's funeral, we all stood together and like disciplined pilgrims in the wilderness, we sang her favorite hymn. And we told ourselves that we believed those words. Even though our hearts were heavy and we were grief-filled and we would miss her, we were standing together reminding ourselves God had a great eternal plan for Susie's life and cancer couldn't touch it. That's what we remembered. She lived her life remembering that God was on her side and we rested in the truth that when her earthly life was over, she got to go stand by his side because he'd been guarding her and keeping her every day of her life. I want to encourage you that Psalm 121 is not just a prayer to pray when you're afraid or when you're fearful. You can pray it every day. You can practice these disciplines reminding yourself you have a good keeper and his plans are good because our life is a journey. We are all pilgrims. We're going to God every single day. And when we pray like this, we remind ourselves that God is willing to take every step with us. We can trust in his perfect keeping care along the way. We can rest in his nearness and his presence. And we can have perfect confidence that his plan is good and eternally sound. I want us to close today. I want us to pray the way the psalmist does here. I just want to bless God. I want to give some of his words back to him. So bow with me, and we're going to bless God with his words. This is from Jude 24. And now to God, the one who is able to keep us from stumbling, to God, the one who is able to present us blameless before the presence of his glory with joy, to God be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time, now and forevermore. In Jesus' name, amen.